You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in Psalm 122. We are, if you remember, we started this series of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. It's Psalm 120 up to Psalm 134. These 15 psalms were sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way up to the temple as they would have to go up three times a year for the great pilgrim feasts. We looked at how Jesus, uh, we see in the New Testament that Jesus himself would have been part of one of these pilgrim caravans, and we started in Psalm 120. The picture for the pilgrim in Psalm 120 was a hostile world. You remember this pilgrim is surrounded by unbelievers, he's crying out for deliverance from the Lord, and this is really the start of the pilgrim's journey. Psalm 121, I'll lift my eyes to the mountains from where does my help come, my help comes from the Lord. We saw the psalmist, the pilgrim, lift his eyes to the mountain, looking to the Lord for divine help in the midst of such a world. And now in Psalm 122, we have a scene that really pictures the triumph and joy that this pilgrim would feel as he arrives at Jerusalem to the Lord's house. Let's read the first five verses. It's only nine verses. That's all we're going to do tonight, but let's see how we do. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. So we see immediately that the heart of this pilgrim is filled with joy as he enters the holy city. Remember, this is coming to the end of a long journey, As he comes over, he would have seen the Temple Mount raised up as it is and looking at this holy city with the shining temple on top. Notice the personal element here. He says, I was glad, and then immediately notice the corporate element too, when they said to me. So you can sort of see that he's playing on here. It's It's almost like he's had an invitation to join a pilgrim caravan and go up to the Lord. His heart was glad when he did this. His heart is filled with gladness at the prospect of entering the temple, the place where God dwells, of being with the worshipping saints, of being with other pilgrims, being where the priests were singing praise to God, where the sacrifices were being offered, where all the duties of sacred religion were being carried out. You see, this is a good example for us. Now, we don't have a temple in a pilgrim like that. We, we, have a, we are all temples of the Holy Spirit, but we do have corporate gatherings that are just as Uh, important as they were in the Old Testament as we come together and the gifts of the body work in a special way in the corporate gathering. So we should try and emulate and share that attitude that our hearts are just glad when we get to gather together as saints of the Lord. He's glad when he joins with other pilgrims. You see, because other Christians, other believers, you share the same mind as we've been talking about on Sundays. You have the same motivations, you have the same goal in end, and you ultimately know you have the same destination. And all of those things fill the heart with gladness. This is one reason why fellowship in the church is just so important. We should crave it, we should long for it, we should participate in it, even when it is difficult. It's an act of worship, really. It's actually an act of obedience to the Lord, coming to to church and using your gifts for the body. And when we're being obedient to the Lord, we're walking in his truth, and this is the essence of discipleship. It is part of our pilgrimage to the Father's house. And this is also something that we should extend to others. Come, come with me up to the house of the Lord. We would probably in our vernacular say, come with me to church. Come to church, hear the voice of the king, be amongst his people worshipping him and be impacted by that. 
He says, our feet, verse 2, are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. You see, we don't only glimpse the city from afar. We don't only look in wonder. One day we know that our feet, metaphorically speaking, will be within her gates. Now, we know that this pilgrim in this context is obviously talking about his literal pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, up to Zion. But as with all of these Psalms, as we talked about briefly last week, there's obviously a spiritual application and a spiritual component that we can make plenty of associations with that we'll look up as we have our own pilgrimage up to the house of the Lord. He says, O Jerusalem, and this is really the heart's cry of the children of God, O Jerusalem, because what that means is, O Zion, O the dwelling place of God. That is where our heart should be. That's where we should always be thinking about. That's where we know we will ultimately end up. That's where we take refuge. That's our comfort. That's our place of security. This is everything that the Lord does for us. Oh, Jerusalem. And we even see this in the world today. That actual cry, oh, Jerusalem, is the motivation for what we would call Zionism today. And it's also the motivation for the future of all those who believe in God. Now, of course, as it spreads out into the world, for many, it's just about land and cities. But biblically, it was about God, the God of Zion and the people walking in faithfulness. But we still have to come to the conclusion that Jerusalem was and is a special place. In many ways, it serves as a microcosm of the world. It is a hotspot for spiritual warfare. Somehow you'll find Jerusalem is always in the headlines. It was always in the headlines, pretty much if you had headlines, all the way going back through history. It's always been the center of the world. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches. Ezekiel 5.5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of nations with lands around her. And in uh, Ezekiel 38, verse 12, the actual biblical Hebrew uses a, a very unusual expression of a city. It calls Jerusalem the belly button or the navel of the world. And that's picturing the central place that God has. It's not necessarily talking geographically in the middle of the world, but as far as the divine perspective is, Jerusalem is that center. And Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the north, the city of the great king. And one day it will be the city of the great king. There is something unique about Jerusalem, even if today it is a city that rejects the Lord on large, a sinful city just like everything else. But it is impossible to deny if you are sensitive to scripture and history. And why is this? Second Chronicles 6.6, 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Now, it's not because the city is necessarily special or the people are necessarily special. It's that God has chosen them. He has set them apart, is what it basically means, for his purposes. Now, don't mistake me. God was willing to destroy the city on more than one occasion when they strayed and when they were unfaithful to him. But it is special because God has set it apart for a divine purpose. And this is much like God chose the Israelites. This is much like God has chosen uh, believers of, of all the seed of Abraham. God chose Jerusalem to be a geographical location from which he would redeem the world. And this is just history. It was the location that saw the death and the resurrection of Messiah. And although this was confined to the earth 2,000 years ago, the results of that really do echo into eternity. It's one of these things that just goes on and on. And it is to Jerusalem that I believe one day the Messiah will return. 
He will not return as a helpless babe to Bethlehem all those years ago. He will not be a sacrificial lamb on a cross at Golgotha. He will return to Mount Zion as a conquering king. And his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And then we will see it really will be the city of the great king, fulfilling that purpose that God had for it that never quite came to fruition in history past. There's a famous Jewish expression that says, Jerusalem is a port city on the shore of eternity. A port, it's not a port city, obviously, but it's talking about uh, it's a port city on the shore of eternity. Now look at the text in the psalm here. It says, built as a city that is compact together. That's what my NASB reads. And as, as I've said, remember, that's quite an unusual expression. They've tried to give you the meaning of the words there. Some of your translations might have a slightly different flavor to that. It's a very unusual Hebrew expression. This is the only place in the entire Bible that you find this exact word. Now, translators have tried to capture it with uh, things like knit together or joined together. The Young's literal translation says joined to itself together. And it's a fascinating word. Within it, you'll find the Hebrew word chavar. Chavar is the word for friend. Now, it has a connotation of friendship or companionship, of joining together. That's what friendship means, you know, two companions coming together. You find a similar word talking about the curtains in the tabernacle. In Exodus 26, it says that they must be joined together, that they may be one. It's talking about the curtains of the tabernacle. So in this verse, in Psalm 122, verse 3, it is trying to give us the idea that Jerusalem is connected or joined together, not with another thing, but together with itself. Now, that, now what, do you, what do I mean by that? This is quite, this is just, stay with me, because this is an amazing thing that's hidden away in the word of God here. In the Babylonian Talmud, so this is Jewish tradition, and some of this predates, obviously, Jesus and the, the New Testament particularly. Psalm 120, this is what it says. Psalm 122, verse 3, is brought to prove that since Jerusalem is knit or compacted together, there must be two of them. The Hebrew word havar includes in it the word and concept for friend, companion, Thus, Jerusalem must have a companion. Thus, there must be another Jerusalem in heaven. Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 23. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, God always teaches us something about the spiritual through the physical. This is why so many times in the New Testament he says, look at Israel, learn the lessons of Israel, look at their feasts, look at their appointed services, look at everything that I've revealed to you in the word of God, because in every single thing, even the words, and as we're going to see the name of this city, there is theological truth. It's actually just amazing. Let me go a little deeper with you. Stay with you here, because there's something, this is, you'll see just some of the benefits of studying the original languages here. You actually find this truth that there are, in fact, two Jerusalems embedded within the Hebrew language in the name of Jerusalem itself. So let me just try and explain this to you in a way that just keeps the flow. Uh, in the Hebrew language, you have a suffix on the end of a word, so you can tell whether it's plural or singular. Like we would have an S on the end of a word to make it plural a little bit in this language here. You would have, there's quite a few different ones in Hebrew. So for, for that word, havar, which is friend, you would have havarim, havarim. It's an im sound on the end, and that means friends, that's plural. And that's the most common one. However, there is also a special suffix that is more of an im sound that is not plural. It indicates a pair. 
It can't be more than two, you see. So you, you have that there. So you see this a lot in Hebrew. In English, we would say a pair of socks or a pair of trousers or whatever. In Hebrew, the word is gabaim for a pair of socks. Garbaim. You notice the I'm on the end. That's the, the suffix on the end there that means a pair of socks. And there's quite a few words in Hebrew that do that. The same thing for a pair of trousers. Now, it gets interesting when you get to certain words like mime. Does anyone know? Has anyone heard what mime is in Hebrew? That's the, the word for water. But notice it has a pair ending on it. But it, the word is just water. Chaim. You may have seen a Jew, like in a movie, lechaim, they say, like when they're doing toasts. That is the word for life. But notice it's also it's a paired word. It's got the suffix of plurality on the end. And then you have, for our context here tonight, Yerushalayim. Notice. So that you have a pair of waters, a pair of lives, and a pair of Jerusalems. Actually, in the, in the language itself, this is the ending that it has. Now, the, the reasons for this is, are just fascinating as you get into them. You have a pair of waters, because water is dual, because back in Genesis 7, it says that you had the waters above and the waters below, which burst forth during the flood. And they are spoken of as a pair, as one, you could say. And this is the same for life. Why, why is it a pair of lives? Well, because there is this life and there is the life to come. They are big concepts in Jewish thought and also for, the, for our religion too. There are two lives. And then there are a pair of Jerusalems. Jerusalem is also in that paired plural ending because Jerusalem, there is here on earth and there is the new Jerusalem to come. Revelation 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And now what I find so fascinating about this is that, remember, the Hebrew language and these things from the Talmud that I'm quoting, obviously they do not take the book of Revelation or the book of Hebrews as authoritative. You know, that's not their, they don't consider that scripture. But what you do find is that they are just teaching the same message. Like we have the teaching of the heavenly New Jerusalem that is actually embedded within the very Hebrew language and, in fact, in the name of Yerushalayim. That's just, for me, I just find that absolutely fascinating. So sorry for nerding out with you there, but we are going to nerd out a little bit more in a minute. But in many ways, this whole section does picture the eternal kingdom vision of the future that will be the resting place of every pilgrim who does go up to the house of the Lord, the New Jerusalem. It says back in Psalm now, it says, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So it says all the tribes go up because this was an ordinance. It was a command. Remember, three times a year, all the tribes had to do that. And they were there to do that, to praise the Lord, to sacrifice, to be with the saints, to give thanks to the Lord, to give thanks to his name. It says, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Now, thrones symbolize the rule of law, the establishment and the administration of justice. And of course, the thrones are the Davidic line of thrones that you have. And ultimately, this is the same because one day the ultimate descendant of David will rule from the throne of David. This is promised multiple times in the scripture. It points towards the future. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 2, that gives us that eschatological vision of the last days, and it says when the Lord is reigning in Zion, the nations will stream up to him. This is what we have being pictured here. The nations, the believers, streaming up to him, and it says that he will administer the rule of law. He will, he will judge the world. People will come to him with their problems, and he will issue a righteous judgment. The word of the Lord will go forth from Zion. This is the ultimate fulfillment of these things that we see pictured for us here 
in the Old Testament. Again, I find that fascinating. Now, you remember in Luke chapter 22, we even have Jesus, he hints at this future when he says to the disciples, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's the kingdom picture that he's looking at there. But all of this imagery for me was beautifully captured in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. You know, you've noticed I mentioned that book quite a lot, right? It's, an, it's a required reading, I would say, for a Christian. But The Pilgrim's Progress is basically a journey of a man from the city of destruction to what we call the celestial city. And it's basically his pilgrimage. So it's, the, it's exactly the same as what we're reading in the Songs of Ascent. Someone coming from the land up to the house of, of Zion. And at the end of that book, there's a beautiful description of when, he find, when this pilgrim finally reaches the celestial city. And you'll know, I'm going to read the whole section for you now. It's quite long, but stay with me. You'll notice some of the verse references, hopefully, as we go through. This is what happens. As he gets to the edge of the city, he meets two shining ones, two angels who tell him about this place. So this is from Bunyan's book. It says, The talk they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place, who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, they said, is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, the spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given to you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth. Sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, but the former things are passed away. You are now going to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the prophets, men that God has taken away from the evil to come, and that are now resting their beds upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. The men then asked, what must we do in this holy place? To whom it was answered, you must there receive the comforts of all your toil, and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king by the way. In that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One, for there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desire to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with the hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone before you, and there you, sh uh, there you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows into the holy place after you. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into a equipage fit to ride out with the king of glory. When he shall come with the sound of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind, you shall come with him. And when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment, you shall sit with him. Yes, and when he shall pass sentence upon all the workers of iniquity, let them be angels or men. You also shall have a voice in that judgment because they were his and your enemies. Also, when he shall again return to that city, you shall go too with the sound of the trumpet and be with him forever. Isn't that amazing? Like, it's just such a, think about this. This man wrote that while he was in a 16th century Bedford jail. Like that, and that's, this is the sort of inspiration that this man was having at this time in a dark uh, dungeon. Uh, this, it's just amazing. Let's read the rest of uh, Psalm 122. It says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. 
For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The pilgrim here exhorts his companions to pray for peace in Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And why is he doing this at this time? It's because he loves the journey. He loves, remember how glad he was when someone invited him to join the pilgrim caravan. He loves going up to the house of the Lord. He loves everything that transpires when he gets to Jerusalem. The fellowship, the service, the offering, the singing, the thanksgiving, the praise, the sacrifices. This is what fills this man's heart with joy. He loves it and therefore it is in his best interest to pray for the peace of this place where all of this transpires. It will bring them prosperity. The word has more the connotation of peace, rest and tranquility in this context. It is beneficial to the house of the Lord, to the sanctuary and the service of the Lord, that there is peace in this city. So all these things can take place. The pilgrim seeks what is good for God's kingdom and he prays for it accordingly. That is what this verse is really saying within its context. The pilgrim seeks what is good for God's kingdom and prays for it accordingly. And for me, this reminds me of what did I, how did our Lord, Lord, teach me to pray. Pray in this manner. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You pray for God's kingdom purposes and because it is beneficial to us here as sons of the kingdom on this earth. Now let's just nerd out again for a little bit on this word Jerusalem. I'll add a bit of depth to this. The name Jerusalem, or Salem as you may have heard it in the very early days of the Bible, Remember that character we met, Melchizedek, king of Salem, this weird kingly priest who was the typifying Jesus Christ as a king priest who was king of Jerusalem, the city of peace at this time, a very early type of Christ there. But at this stage, it's called Jerusalem. Now, in the, in the English, you don't hear it so much, but it comes from the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. So if, if you said Yerushalayim, you can, you can see Hebrew is made up, every word in Hebrew is made up of root letters. And you can have different root, you can have the same root letters, but can have lots of different words come out of it, depending on the, the context of the sentence that it's in. So this one you have Yerushalayim. We've talked about the pair concept of that, but it's still the root is the, the, the shin, the lamed, and the mem, which is shalom. You can hear those letters in the dominant phrase there for peace, shalom. What this really means is not just peace in the sense of no war. It means a completeness, a spiritual wholeness, a notion of well-being and being in harmony with your creator, ultimately. Now, we may have, you may have heard that understanding before, and that's just hold on to that for a minute. It gets much more interesting when you look at another one of these words that can come from the same three root letters as shalom, and this is the word shalem. And you say, you would say le shalem would be to pay. It comes, again, exactly the same root letters that you find in this word Jerusalem here, but it means to pay. And it is really talking about a payment or a transaction that is given to restore peace between two parties and bring shalom. So you have to pay, le shalem, to get shalom that brings this ultimate wholeness and reconciliation between these two parties at this time. So in the name Jerusalem, we have this meaning. And for, this is significant for those of us who believe in Jesus, in Yeshua, because we believe that he paid Leshalem for our sins in order to make things right with God and to restore peace, shalom, between us and him. And that's just in the back half of the name. Let's look at the first half of the name. There's much more to this. The Jeru, as we would say if we split up our English word in Hebrew, there's no J sound, so it would be a Yeru. Why do they call Why? Where did this come from? So you have to go back to the book of Genesis. And again, the typology here is just huge. 
You remember the story of Abraham. He climbed to the top of Mount Moriah with his son Isaac in tow to offer that sacrifice. You all remember the story. Just before he offered the sacrifice, the Lord appeared uh, and a lamb was in the thicket. You know the story and he didn't actually kill Isaac. And then this verse comes up in Genesis uh, 22, verse 14. It says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, let me read to you from, this is from the Tree of Life translation. This is one of the slightly more unusual translations that I also do a lot of my devotional reading in. It's a Messianic Jewish translation, first one that's ever been done, really, since the writing of the New Testament. It's quite new, but so it uses Hebrew names, and it helps us in this instance. They render it like this. Abraham named that place Adonai Yireh, as it is said today, on the mountain Adonai will provide. So that you get that little phrase, Yireh. Now you notice that's similar to Yeru, isn't it? Which would be Jerusalem. Yireh, the Lord will provide. That's where it comes from. And in fact, the actual word for Moriah comes from that same word too. So all of the, you can just see in the Hebrew, you would be picking up on all of these. All these different connections are being made just through the very language that is being used. Now, the word means, it's translated there, the Lord will provide. This is where, if you've ever done a study on the names of God or in the English language, we say Jehovah Jireh. And there's some songs that use that name too, Jehovah Jireh. That means the Lord will provide. That's the anglicized form of it. However, the word that's often translated will be provided is the word Yirah there. And it actually means to see. And this is interesting. And it means to see in the sense that God will see to it. And that's why the translators feel that it's, yeah, will provide, does capture the right flavor of that word. So the name Jerusalem, in its wholeness, really means that God will see to it, provide a complete payment for peace. That's just in the name of, you see much theology is just in that one word there. I mean, you could spend so much time studying those sorts of things, but that is just in the name of Jerusalem. That is why it's the city of the great king. That is why I believe Jesus will come back to that city while his feet touch down there. But that is why he lived there and he died there, why the resurrection happened there, because it is the epicenter, we could call it that. And this is why. It's even in the very name you have this theology. And I believe this is why it's a source of such conflict in the world today. If you want to get people riled up, start talking about Jerusalem. It's a spiritual conflict. Why? Because the very name points towards what Jesus Christ did there 2,000 years ago. The very name points to the fact that there is an eternity in heaven with a new Jerusalem that will come down to this earth. The very name points to the fact that the king of Jerusalem, the king of kings, is one day coming and he will judge the earth in righteousness. That's why Jerusalem causes such conflict in this earth. And then it says we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, we could see what that means for the pilgrim. What does that mean for us in our world today? The best way to pay for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray for the salvation of people in the land, quite frankly. Albeit Jews, Palestinians, there's like 70 different nationalities that are actually live in Israel, something like that. It's a very multi-ethnic city. We pray for all of them. We can pray for leaders, officials. We ultimately have to pray that God would draw them onto the pilgrim path like their forefathers many, many years ago, so that they too would want to look upon the Lord's house with gladness, and they would too would contribute to the shalom of the city and ultimately to the kingdom. That is what we pray when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, yes, you can go further than that and pray for much more specific things, but ultimately that is the most important thing. We must pray for the peace 
the kingdom path for people to become pilgrims in that respect because ultimately that is what will bless the world. Paul makes this very clear in the book of Romans. Very unusual verse, Romans 11 verse 15. Talking about Israel, talking about unbelieving Israel in fact, he says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. And what does he mean by that? Because of their rejection of Messiah. Do you remember in Matthew 13 when the official rejection of the Messiah when they said, you're not doing your power by uh, God, you're doing it by um, demons. They rejected Jesus at that point, and then he said, that's it, I'm going to the Gentiles. He started teaching in parables, he started veiling his truth, he started preparing the apostles for the next missionary work across the world, bringing in all the people for his name. But Paul sums that up by saying, if their rejection can bring such blessing to the world, he then goes on in Romans 11:15. what will their acceptance be but life? From the dead. You see, if their rejection ended up bringing reconciliation for the world through the proclamation of the gospel through Jesus Christ, when they finally accept the Messiah, as it says, all Israel will be saved in that future time, Zechariah says, when you look upon him who is pierced, that will ultimately be life from the dead, because that will be the kingdom. That is when he comes, that is when everything changes, that is when the world to come comes to this earth, where the earth basically gets transferred over to the kingdom of our Lord. That is what will happen ultimately in the future. That is what Jerusalem is pointing us to all the time. That is why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that they would know the Prince of Peace, the King who will one day rule from Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem goes all around the world. That was true in Yeshua's day. That's why his ministry was focused there. That's why he was died, buried, and resurrected there. And that message has truly gone all around the world to every tribe, tongue, and nations. It was true in his day. I would say it's true today. Like I said, what happens in Jerusalem seems to go all around the world today. Every world leader has an opinion on what is happening in Jerusalem. Everyone wants to get involved with what is happening in Jerusalem. It's no different. And it will ultimately be true again in the future. Remember the Isaiahic vision? When the king is there, all the nations will flow up with their problems, their, their pilgrim feasts, all these different things that we will be doing in the kingdom. It will all be there again. That is why we pray. Let me end by reading Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness, all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.